This morning we'll be reading from 1 Samuel 17, uh, verses 1 through 11. Um, But before I do, uh, David uh, asked me to share uh, a little story about how this this passage and the story of David and Goliath has meaning for me. Uh, Several years ago, I had the privilege of getting to go on a mission trip to Guatemala. And in that time, uh, we were, in all the preparations, we got ready to get down there, and, and I was... Just on that, that day, was, I was so excited to get to work and move rebar and get up on top of this roof and start laying things down. And, you know, I was just ready to do it, you know. I'm just built for that. I was so excited to do the work. And, and yet they, they called me down and said, no, no, it's, it's your time to go do VBS. Wait a minute. No, no, no. I, uh, I'm going to work up here. No, no, it's VBS. You need to come do VBS. Begrudgingly, <laughs> shruggingly or whatever, I, I went down and had the opportunity to get to play Goliath. Yes. <laughs> it was my day. It was my opportunity. There was a, a little uh, boy named David, which was perfect, David, about five years old, and, and he... Uh, he did a great job swinging my you know, um, cell phone cord as the sling, and, and I fell, and it was, a, it was a great story you know, for these kids of the community, and I, and I realized at that, that time it was not about me and what I was expecting to do on VBS on a mission trip, but what God was going to do through me, which was pretty cool. And from then on out, David and, and I were buddies, and... Uh, and he would follow me around. If I had a bucket, he'd have a bucket. If I had two buckets, you know, walking to try to move the cement and move the concrete and stuff, he'd have these little buckets, and he would be following right behind me. So that was, that was a great, great story, and it's great meaning to me um, about going and doing what you're called to do, not what you think you're supposed to do. All right. Now to the Scripture. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at... Soko in Judah. They pitched camp in Ephes, Damon, between Soko and Ezekiah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another, with a valley between them. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. He was over nine feet tall. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and you are not the servants of Saul? (laughs) Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistines said, This day I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. 
On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. I think Greg makes a great Goliath. They let me sit up here with the uh, choir and the orchestra this morning as long as I promised not to sing. <clears throat> I'd like to do two things uh, this morning. I want to retell the story of David and Goliath for you, though I'm sure it's quite familiar, and I'd like to put you in the story. Uh, first, the story. It's found in 1 Samuel 17. If you have a Bible nearby, you can follow along. Uh, as Greg read, the contest took place in the valley of Elah. Uh, Elah just means uh, an oak tree. Then, as now, the valley of Elah was uh, heavily wooded. At least the mountains on each side of the valley are. Elah runs east-west across the land of Canaan. It extends from the interior, from Mount Hebron all the way out to the Shephelah on the west uh, coast. The Philistine army marched up the valley and bivouacked on the south side uh, of the valley. They, they have pinpointed the location of this battle. The valley is flat and level, about a half mile wide in the middle, and the mountains rise on either side like an amphitheater. It's a great place to have a battle. The text says the Philistines gathered their army, which suggests that they had gathered a large force from all the city-states of the Philistines. Philistines were organized politically much like the Greek city-states were. Each state was a nation unto itself, the city and the surrounding territory. Each state had its own king and its own army. So they... Uh, collected an army from the five Philistine uh, cities with the intent of invading the interior of Israel and annihilating the nation. Uh, Saul and his little ragtag army were bivouacked on the north side of the valley. They were dug in. The text seems to indicate there were trenches or bulwarks or some kind of defensive mechanism there. Saul, as you know by this time, was crazy as a bedbug. He was incompetent and cowardly. He's exhibit A of Lord Acton's axiom that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. He left God out of his life. He had a, a, a good beginning, but he left God out of his life and became one of the most useless characters in the Old Testament. He was the commander-in-chief of the armies of Israel and a profile of courage he was not. Now let me tell you about the Philistines. This word has an entrenched negative connotation in English. In our idiom, a Philistine is someone without manners, someone totally lacking in social graces, someone, who's, someone who is definitely uncool. But the Philistines, in fact, came from a very rich culture. They originally came to Palestine from the Aegean Sea, from Crete, what the Old Testament calls Kaftor. They were related to the Minoan and Mycenaean cultures, if you know anything about that rich culture. They fought as mercenaries 
in the Trojan War alongside the Greeks. They're mentioned in Homer's uh, poem as the Pelasgau. In the 4th and 13th centuries, which would be three or 400 years before this event uh, took place, they migrated by sea to the coast of Canaan. We don't know why, but they came in vast numbers, destroyed the Hittite Empire up in what today is Syria, moved south along the coast, destroyed every nation in, in their way, moved down into the delta of Egypt. There's a great uh, wall painting on one of the uh, palaces at Thebes depicting this victory, actually showing pictures of the Philistines. You know what they look like. They were accoutred just like Greek warriors with crested helmets and the armor that uh, Greek uh, soldiers wore. They were called the Sea People by all who wrote during this time because they came uh, from the Mediterranean Sea. They eventually settled on the southern coastal plain of Canaan, what we call the Gaza Strip today. In fact, the Gaza Strip is named for one of their cities, uh, Gaza. The Philistines had iron weapons. The Israelis did not. This event took place in the seam chronologically between the Bronze Age and the Iron Age. The Philistines had iron. They had an advanced technology that Israel did not have. They had an iron working monopoly that kept weapons out of the hands of the Israelites. In fact, a farmer in Israel had to go down to Philistia to have his plowshare sharpened because they simply didn't have the technology to do that. The Philistines raided at will. They continually humiliated Israel. I give you all that not to give you a history lesson, but because I want you to understand that the Philistines were invincible. Israel was outnumbered, outgunned. It was no match. It was Slippery Rock Teachers College versus the Crimson Tide. And it's important to understand that their hostility is, was more than hostility to Israel. It was hostility toward the God of Israel. The text is very clear in, in what it says. When uh, you will read later when, when Goliath gave his uh, charge, he said uh, that he came to defy the God of the hosts of Israel. Not the hosts of Israel, but the God of the hosts of Israel. Now let me explain what was going on. The Philistines are uniquely described as uncircumcised. Hardly any other nation in the Old Testament is described that way. There's a reason. Circumcision was the symbol of Israel's relationship to God, the love relationship that they had with him, the covenant love that both, uh, both held. The Philistines are described as uncircumcised because they wanted nothing whatever to do with God and were, in fact, determined to annihilate Israel from the face of the earth. There's a reason for that. Behind them was an evil force that was determined to destroy Israel so that salvation could not come to the earth. As you know, Israel had a unique mandate, unique message. They were charged to bring the good news of the one who was to come who would set things right. Any day the Messiah could have been born who would save the world, and the nations conspired against Israel to destroy her. There's a very vivid uh, symbolic picture of this in the book of Revelation where a great fiery red dragon tries to devour the woman who is about to give birth to a child. 
The woman is Israel. The child, of course, is the Lord Jesus. At any moment, Israel could have given birth to the Messiah. And the dragon is the evil force behind every other political force in that region that was trying to destroy uh, the nation of, of Israel. It's interesting that the name Philistine uh, is still with us. Uh, the name Palestine is the same word. The Romans, when they occupied uh, Israel, gave the land that name to humiliate the Jews. And it came to be known as Philistine land or Palestine. That's why Jews today won't use that word to describe their land. It's Israel, uh, not Palestine. The name stuck, and perhaps it's a reminder, us, a reminder to us that God's enemies are always with us. Now, let's go to the conflict. Uh, the Philistines proposed trial by individual combat, one soldier pitted against another. Mano a mano, winner take all. As Greg read, if the Philistine champion won, then Israel would become the Philistine servants, vice versa. It's actually not a bad way to carry on a war when you think about it. It's less expensive and there's less loss of life. I was thinking this week it might be good if Mr. Obama would challenge Mr. Ahmadinejad to a game of one-on-one -on -one basketball <laughs> and just, just settle this whole whole thing. You, know, you get to keep your nukes if you win, and you don't if, if we win. Or he could challenge Mr. Assad to a round of golf. It just makes a lot of sense. Now, uh, the problem was that the hero that the Philistines set out was Goliath. He was a giant of a man. Literally. Uh, he was a little over nine feet tall. Now, that's not uh, hyperbole or myth or legend. There are numerous letters from Egypt, other places in the Middle East, uh, that uh, tell us that there were actually giants in the land at that time. It's probably the origin of the myth of the Titans, people that were eight and nine feet tall. A number of years ago, I was in the London Museum, and I came across a glass case in which there was a human thigh bone. It was about that long. It was definitely human. And the little inscription said that the man who, uh, from whom this bone was taken was between eight and a half and nine feet tall. So these people existed. We know that there were at least five of these giants in the land. Goliath had three brothers, and his father, Anak, was still living. So there were uh, five of them. Um, his armor is described quite in detail. He had uh, this uh, bronze helmet on with the crest, looked sort of like, um, a rooster tail sticking up. He had on a bronze coat of mail. Uh, this was not interlocking mail, like the sort of thing you see during the medieval period, but plates of bronze that were that overlapped, that were sewn onto a leather jerkin that reached down to the knees. And he wore uh, what were called greaves, sort of like stovepipes. There were bronze shin guards, leg guards. He had a sword was slung over his soldier. We know from uh, depictions of Greek soldiers, that's the way they carried their swords into battle. Uh, they drew them from behind their back. Uh, he had a throwing javelin, which was the, the shaft was the size of a weaver's beam. A weaver's beam is the piece of wood that the wool is wrapped around on a loom, and it's about the size of, generally about the size of the big end of a baseball bat. And uh, the head of this thing was made of iron and weighed about 15 pounds. This was a throwing javelin. had a loop on it that he could, he could use it to, to hurl at people. For 40 days, 
Goliath went out, confronted Israel, uh, both in the morning and in the evening. And uh, Israel would not send anyone out to do battle. They were completely intimidated. Saul actually should have been the one to go, but he was a coward. Uh, Sin does that to us. You know, it makes cowards of us all. Now, David, let's uh, bring him into the story. David was tending sheep up in Bethlehem. He was given stores for his brothers, food to take down to uh, the place where the battle was taking place. That's how uh, armies were supplied in those days. Families took care of individual soldiers. So he jogged the 15 miles from Bethlehem down to this uh, site. And uh, he left his food with the quartermaster and went down to the front, or what the text says it describes as the ditches, probably the defensive structures. He looked over the top and he saw Goliath come down and taunt uh, the army of Israel. And he said to someone standing nearby, this is disgraceful. Who is this bozo that he should, divide, he should defy the God of the armies of Israel? Now, uh, that's in the Hebrew, bozo. Um, <laughs> now, as you know, his brothers just hopped all over him. Now, who do you think you are? Now, we know what, what you're doing. You just came down here to show off. You wanted to see what was going on. Of course, when we're caught in cowardice or in sin, we always retire, or generally retaliate with anger and jump on the other person. And that's what they did. Jackson pointed out last week, and he's absolutely right, that David was an abused child, emotionally abused. As you know, when, when Samuel came to anoint the king, Jesse trotted out the seven brothers of, of, of David, but David was left in the field. And when Samuel asked, where is the, do you have another son? Jesse said, oh yeah, there's one more, and he is the, and he uses an interesting Hebrew word, the insignificant one, the little one. He didn't matter. He was out with the sheep. And then later, as Jackson pointed out, there's a psalm that says, Mother and Father have forsaken me. It's a perfective use of that Hebrew verb. It's not something that could happen. It's not theoretical. It happened. Mother and Father have forsaken me, but the Lord has taken me in. So I think that was one of the origins of, God, of David's great heart for God because he'd been abandoned by his parents and abused emotionally by them. And so he had turned to the Lord and the Lord had taken him in. The Lord had become his shepherd. The Lord was his father, his parent, all that, uh, that he needed. Now, uh, David's reaction brought him to the attention of Saul, as you know. And uh, he appeared uh, before Saul. Now, let me take, you, take a moment to disabuse your mind of impressions you may have of David. As a child growing up, I thought of David as a sweet little boy. Uh, sitting on a rock someplace, playing a, a harp with a sheep curled up on his lap and a beatific look on his, on his face, you know, kind of a frail, uh, pale child. Uh, believe me, this was not David. If you remember, when Saul went through one of his manic phrases, Jackson went through this, or Rod went through this passage a few weeks back, um, he was told that there was a man who was a skilled musician he was a very handsome lad, they said, and uh, he's a mighty warrior. He uses the hero, Gabor, which means a hero, a warrior. 
Uh, David, uh, later when he was talking to uh, Saul, said uh, there was a time when a bear or a lion attacked the sheep, and it's a frequentative, not something that happened once or twice. It happened repeatedly. Some predator would go after the sheep. David said, I grabbed him by the hair and killed him with my bare hands. David was the complete package when, when you read all of these passages about him. He had the musical ability of a Beethoven, the literary skill of a Shakespeare, the military genius of David Petraeus, the hand-eye co coordination of, of, um, uh, of uh, can't think of his name right now, the Patriots quarterback, Brady, Tom Brady. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. He was a kind of pre-Renaissance Renaissance man. So when you think of David, think of Tim Tebow. Someone like that. You know, he was probably in his early, early 20s, and he's described as a man of war. So he, he, he certainly was, uh, he was ready for something like this. I'm sure he had spent thousands of hours practicing, slinging in rocks and stones, and very accurate with the use of that weapon. Carolyn and I, once when we were in Israel, saw a little Arab boy following some sheep, and he was slinging it at bushes as he went by and I thought that's David that's what he was that's how he was spending his time developing his his skill with that uh, weapon and by the way let me let me point out that slings were not children's toys that was a very powerful weapon um, the basic component of a sling was a little pocket leather pocket onto which leather thongs were tied they were three to four feet long one thong was tied around the wrist. The other was knotted and held between the fingers like you'd notch a, an arrow. The projectiles that they used were normally quite large. I have one here. This is an actual sling stone from the city of Megiddo. It weighs about eight ounces, so it has a, quite a bit of mass. Uh, they didn't whirl them because you, you can't be that accurate. They threw them back like you would throw a fly line back, and when the when the uh, end of the sling reached uh, the reach of the, of the thongs, you stepped forward and threw them, and they were very, very accurate. Um, there were some Benjaminites referred to in the book of Judges who could sling it a hair's breadth and never miss. Uh, they have uncovered training manuals for Roman soldiers. They could hit a man-sized target at 200 yards. So they, they, these were lethal, lethal weapons. And David himself was highly skilled in, in the use of, of this piece of uh, equipment. Um, a three-foot sling, uh, they say, can generate a velocity on the projectile of about 200 feet per second. That's 135 miles, miles an hour. And... Uh, when David's stone hit its mark, as they say, the rest is history. Now, our son, uh, Randy, trains uh, police officers and others, and he tells me that in close-quarter close battle, you don't go toe-to-toe to -to -toe with someone who's bigger, stronger, and better armed than you. Uh, the goal is to survive and win, and you need to apply your strength uh, to your opponent's weakness. David's strength was his ability to use the uh, use this uh, sling and to strike from a distance. 
and Goliath's weakness was the fact that he was totally unprepared. Uh, the text says that, that Goliath arose. In other words, he must have been sitting down when David stepped out of the ranks of Israel. And uh, David didn't parry and thrust and dance around. He ran straight at Goliath and caught him by surprise. And Goliath was totally unprepared. He didn't unsheath his sword. He didn't drop his lance. He didn't even drop the visor over his helmet. And the one vulnerable spot was where that visor covered. And that's where David struck. Uh, Ray Stedman used to say that Goliath's last thought was nothing like this ever entered my mind before. <laughs> and then the Israelis chased the Philistines back to Philistia and uh, stripped them of their, of their goods. Goliath, David took Goliath's armor home, hung it in his home, and then appropriated Goliath's sword, and he carried it as his own uh, sidearm. Story gets a bit grisly here. As you know, he cut off the giant's head and took, took it to the gates of Jerusalem. You say, oh, I know what that's all about. He took it back to the capital city of Israel as, uh, as, a, as a trophy. No, Jerusalem was not the capital of, of Israel. It was, in fact, a, Philist a uh, Canaanite city. It belonged to the Jebusites. The Israelites had never been able to expel the Canaanites from this particular part of, of Canaan. David was to do that much, much later. I think what David was doing was giving them fair warning. He's saying, you're next. One of the first things David did when he became king is to drive the Jebusites out of Jerusalem because he knew that it was to Zion that the Savior was to come. Yeah, that's reflected in many of his psalms. David, immediately after he conquered Jerusalem, went down to Kiriath-Jerim and, and, and brought the ark back up to the city. David let the ark rot, or pardon me, Saul, let the ark rot in the woods in Kiriath-Jerim for 40 years, cared nothing for God. First thing David did was to bring the ark back to the center of Israel and institute proper worship there and to await the coming of the Messiah. Now, uh, that's the story, uh, just uh, in short form. Let me uh, put you in the story. Uh, imagine yourself as an Israeli soldier on the front lines observing the contest in the valley below. What would you learn? Well, you would learn the art of war. Uh, you would be impressed with David's tactics and technique. He was a highly skilled warrior. His uh, ability had been honed through thousands of repetitions. He was, he was adept as a warrior. But there's something more. There's an attitude that he voices that was the true secret of David's greatness. Now let me begin reading with verse 43. This is 1 Samuel 17:43. The Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you're coming after me with sticks? David just had his shepherd's staff in one hand. Then the Philistine cursed David. And he said to David, Come here to me so I can give your flesh to the birds of the sky and the wild animals of the field. It's an example of uh, 10th century B.C. trash talk. But David replied to the Philistine, You're coming, listen carefully, You're coming against me with sword and spear and javelin. But I'm coming against you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel's army, whom you have defied. 
the God of Israel's armies, whom you, the reference is God, have defied. This very day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and all the land will realize that Israel has a God, and all this assembly will know. In other words, this is a lesson for Israel and for the people of God of all ages. It is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's. The battle is the Lord's. That premise is the secret of David's greatness and ours. Now, how do you fight the battles of the Lord? Well, you don't. You can't. How audacious to think that we can, we can fight God's battles. That question is on the level of the, the uh, Pharisees who came to Jesus one day and said, how can we work the works of God? And Jesus said, in effect, you, you can't work the works of God. Only God can work the works of God. This is the work of God, he said, that you believe in him whom he has sent. In other words, the works of God are done by faith, by relying upon the God of hosts. That's the art of war. Now, how do you do that? How do you bring God into your battles? Well, it's very simple. You ask him. You just ask him to come in. And they get involved in whatever, whatever battle you're facing, whatever adversity you're, is, in, is, is in your life. Okay? That's what prayer is. It's simply asking. There's nothing hard about prayer. There's a story I've told before about a gentleman who stood in, on a prayer service and he prayed one of these long, elaborate theological prayers. Oh, thou great God who sitteth upon the circle of the earth and before whom all its inhabitants are grasshoppers. And there was an old gentleman sitting behind him, pulled on his coattails and said, just call him father and ask him for something. <laughs> That's what prayer is. It's simply, it's simply asking. That was David's genius was that he was a man of prayer. Makes a remarkable statement in one of his psalms, Psalm 109. He talks about those who in who had returned his love with accusation, probably talking about his, his own son. But, and, and, and many of the translations, the translations put it differently someday. Some put it as this one does, I give myself to prayer. And others, I'm a man of prayer. But they're supplying those words. What David said is, those I have loved have turned against me. Now they're my accusers. But I am prayer. In other words, that was the very essence of his existence. He was prayer. His whole life was filled with prayer. And that's what made him great. That's what made him the warrior that he was. It wasn't his, his physical skill. It wasn't the great muscle memory that he had built up over the years by, by practicing. It was that attitude of utter, total dependence upon God. See, that's what all the psalms are about. David's psalms are prayers. They're called in Hebrew tefillim. The word means prayers. Uh, scholars say that these prayers of David are generally divided into three components. They're, the first section is a lament. That is, he laments his case. He talks about the difficulties around him, the foes he has to face, the hardships of his life. The second section is petition. He asks God to get involved in the battle. And the third section is what scholars call a confidence section. He thanks God that the battle is won. In other words, he's fighting a battle that's already won. He may not see the victory, 
But he knows that in due time it will come about. So stated as a principle, this is the art of war. Ask God to get into the conflict with you. Now let me ask you, what are the enemies of your soul? What are your adversaries? It may be a difficult person, an employer, an employee, a spouse, a child, a, a cranky, aging parent. Or you may be the most difficult person in your life. You may be your own worst enemy, plagued with, an, with anger and resentment and bitterness. You've prayed about it. You've, you've wanted to get rid of this. It frustrates you, makes people dislike you, but it keeps coming back. Or it may be a discontented spirit. You're not content with your home or your body or your mind or your children or your opportunities or your marriage or your friendships. It may be unholy fantasies. It may be anxiety. Or it may just be a dullness and a disinterest in spiritual things. These are the enemies that are arrayed against your soul. Peter talks about these. He describes them as the, as the enemies of your, of your soul. They ruin your soul. How do you face and fight these adversaries? Well, you bring God into the battle. And how do you do that? You just ask Him. You get in this thing with me. As Paul would say, in everything, from the, the really tense, difficult, terrifying things of life to the trivialities of life, in everything, by prayer and supplication, let your requests be known unto God. Be a person of prayer. That's what Paul means, pray without ceasing, to go through life bringing God into every circumstance, every encounter, everything that you dread, but also things that you're, you're, not even, you're not even aware of because we never know when we're stepping into a difficult circumstance. Emily Griffin, the uh, Southern Christian writer, says the experience of prayer is clinging. I like that. Prayer is clinging. It's just holding on. It's abiding, to use John's word. It's staying in touch. See, it may be nothing more than calling God's attention to a problem, as David does in, in the lament sections of his Psalms, or as Mary did at the, at the marriage at, at Cana when she said to Jesus, they don't have any wine. She didn't tell him what to do. She just brought the problem to him because she knew he would do something about it. It may be one of those, I think of them as snapshots where you just shoot up a prayer in a, in a moment of crisis. Nehemiah, on one occasion, had to go into the presence of King Artaxerxes, the king of Persia. He was the king's cupbearer. And he wanted to go back to Jerusalem to help build the wall. He was scared to death of this man. He was afraid to ask permission to go back and to take people back to rebuild the walls. And so he stepped into Artaxerxes' presence. And the text says, so I spoke to God and I said to the king of Persia. It's one of these, here goes nothing, Lord, prayers. And he, and he, and he spoke to the king. See? What was he doing? He was just bringing God right into the situation. It may be nothing more than a cry of desperation. Help, Lord, help me. C.S. Lewis says, down through the ages, when we needed wisdom, we might cry out, William Shakespeare, help me. And nothing much happens. 
Or when we need courage, we might cry out, Billy Bud, help me! And nothing much happens. But he says, for 2,000 years, whenever men and women have been in deep and desperate need, and they cried out, Lord Jesus, help me, something significant always happens. A couple of years ago, I came across a really nutty poem by Samuel Walker Foss. It's called The Prayer of Cyrus Brown. It goes like this. The proper way for a man to pray, said Deacon Lemuel Keyes, and the only proper attitude is down upon the knees. No, I should say the way to pray, said Reverend Dr. Wise, is standing straight with outstretched arms and wrapped in upturned eyes. Oh, no, 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 said Elder Slow. Such posture is too proud. A man should pray with eyes fast closed and head contritely bowed. It seems to me his hands should be austerely clasped in front with both thumbs pointing toward the ground, said Reverend Dr. Blunt. Last year I fell in Hitchkin's well head first, said Cyrus Brown, with both my heels a-sticking up and my head a-pointing down. And I prayed a prayer right then and there, the best prayer I ever said, the prayingest prayer I ever prayed. I'm standing on my head. <laughs> See, that's one of those help, Lord, prayers. You're on your way home. And you know you need to interface with your family. And you're tired and you'd love to just grab the newspaper and disappear. And say, help, Lord. Help. Help me. Help me to be the husband, the person that I, that I long uh, to be. Now, let me go back to the story for just a minute uh, to the fact that there were five stones. Why five stones? Well, as I said, there are five giants in the land, and some have, have conjectured that there you know, one stone for each giant. But I think there's a simpler answer. David carried five stones for the same reason warriors carry more than one round in the chamber of his or her rifle. The first round may not bring the adversary down. Here's the odd thing. For some reason, known only to God, you and I may pray and go down in defeat. We may pray, we may ask God to keep us calm and lose our temper. We may pray for years about a broken relationship and see no closure. Some habits may cling to us tenaciously. It may be that God thinks humility is more important than some other virtue we're seeking. It may be that God desires closeness and intimacy with us, with us more than perfection. I don't know. I know that he wants us to cling to him and he wants us to keep on praying. I know that the victory is assured in time. Someday we will see his face and we will be like him, John said. But in the meantime, whether we see the results of the battle or not, we are to pray and not give up. Jesus told two stories in that, in that regard, one is the story of a man who went to borrow a loaf of, friend, of bread from a friend. He woke him up in the middle of the night. The guy was really ticked off. He wouldn't come to the door. He just kept beating on the door until finally his neighbor got up and gave him the bread that he requested. And, and the punchline for Jesus was, ask, keep on asking, and it will be given to you. On another occasion, he told a story about a cranky old judge who wouldn't do the right thing for a woman, an unfortunate woman, wouldn't give her justice. She kept asking, kept asking, kept asking. 
And finally, he gave in and gave her what she request, requested. And Jesus stated the lesson, men and women ought always to pray and not to give up. That is, don't stop praying. Never give up. Never give up. Never, never, never give up. Be, as George MacDonald said, an obstinate praying thing. Take prayer with you wherever you go and pray without ceasing. Ceasing. That's the art of war. Remember the lyrics we sang a moment ago in Martin Luther's words, did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is He. Lord Sabaoth, His name. Sabbath means host. He's the commander-in-chief of the armies of heaven. Lord Sabaoth, His name. From age to age, the same. And He must win the battle. That's the art of war. Let's pray. Be our champion, Lord. Come to our side. Fight our battles for us. We ask that in every circumstance, small or large, that we would remember that the battle is the Lord's. It is not ours. And may we call you alongside to fight our opponent, whatever it may be, for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, this is the uh, first day of Lent, as you know, that period of time of preparation for the cross. Last Wednesday was Ash Wednesday. You probably saw a lot of people with ashes on their forehead, and perhaps you wore ashes on your forehead as a sign of repentance, and we're preparing our hearts for this time when we remember our Lord's death and I think it's utterly fitting that we celebrate communion this morning and, and do that, prepare ourselves for this, this Lenten season. I want to highlight just one, one fact. Let me come at it this way. When our boys were small, we used to say to them, do you know how much we love you? We love you this much. And we'd stretch our arms out as far as we could and then reach out for them. It struck me one day that that's what Jesus did on the cross. See, do you, do you want to know how much I love you? I loved you this much when he stretched his arms out on that cross. That's his way of reaching out to the world and telling us that he loves us. Just for a moment, I'd like for you to think about God's everlasting love. He loved you before you were born. He loved you before your mother and father, brother, sister, friends, church, whatever, loved or hurt you. He will love you after you die. He will never stop loving you. His love is eternal. It's everlasting. And the cross is the greatest expression of that love. God so loved the world, not the world of the physical world, but the people in it. God so loved the world and he gave his only begotten son. So as we first take the bread and then the cup together, let's remember this is how much he loves us. Now we'll ask the man to distribute first the bread. Take the bread, if you will. Our Lord 
said, this is my body, which is for you. This is the body that hung in the darkness during those hours for us. This do, he said, in remembrance of me. And would you take this opportunity to respond to his love by saying to him, just quietly, I love you too. A couple of months ago, I listened to a lecture by a learned rabbi on Yonah. That's the, uh, the way Jews refer to Jonah, the book of Jonah. It's actually his name. He summed up his lecture by saying, what was Yonah's problem, he says. Yonah's problem was that he didn't understand Shuva and the depths of God's mercy. Now, shuva is, shuva is the Hebrew word for repentance. The verb is shuv, means turn around, turn around, turn around. It's used in the Song of Solomon when the young lady is dancing and her lover says, turn around, turn around, spin around. It means, it describes someone who's moving in one direction and they turn 180 degrees in the other direction to go back. It has nothing to do with emotion. It's a matter of the will. You simply change the direction and you come back. He's talking about people that are running away from God and His Word and His will, and they come to their senses. They realize, what am I doing? Why am I trashing my life? And they turn around and they go back. And what they discover, if they repent, if they turn, there's mercy, depths of mercy there. And actually, he used for the word mercy, he used the word kesed, which in the Old Testament describes God's covenant love the depths of God's love. See, that, that's what the cross tells us. We can be going entirely the wrong direction, just totally messing up our lives. Come to our senses. Turn around. There's the cross. There's forgiveness. There's, there's mercy. Uh, Flannery O'Connor captured this idea, I think, at the end of one of her novels. It's entitled The Violent Bear It Away. The main character in it, in the, in the story is this weird prophet named Francis Tarwater who couldn't wait in order to pronounce judgment on the sinners around him. He was full of the wrath of God, and he wanted to announce it. He finally received his long-awaited prophetic call, and God said, Go tell my children of the terrible speed of my mercy. You see, that's what the cross is. It's God. It's the terrible speed of God's mercy. It's God's rushing to our defense and paying the price for our sin. Now again, can we just say to him, I love you. Thank you. Right, let's distribute the element. Jesus took the cup and he said, this is the blood of the new covenant. Do this in remembrance of me. Would you stand, please? Now let's pray. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication. Let your requests be made known unto God, and may the peace of God rule your hearts. 
both now and forevermore. Amen. You're dismissed.